Hi, this is Brent White, and welcome to my sermon podcast. This sermon today was preached on August 13th, 2017, and the topic is the second coming of Jesus Christ. The reason I'm preaching it is because Peter says at the beginning of today's scripture that the end of all things is at hand. What does he mean by that? And I talk in this sermon about specific signs that Jesus, Paul, and others say we should look for when it comes to the second coming of Christ. And I also talk about what we Christians need to do in response to the prospect of the second coming. The most important thing we can do, knowing that Christ will return, Peter says, is to pray. So I conclude the sermon by talking about the importance and priority of prayer. I hope you enjoy it. It comes from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, which I'm going to read right now. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Last Christmas in the New York Times, there's a columnist who writes a column regularly in the op-ed section named Nicholas Kristof, and he happened to interview my very favorite contemporary preacher, Tim Keller, who, until a few months ago, was the very successful pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, in New York City, a church that has been very effective at reaching Men and women in their 20s and 30s, which most churches struggle to do, and to reach them with an uncompromising gospel message. So I have great respect for Keller, and he's a great apologist for the Christian faith. So I was glad that Christoph had the opportunity to interview him. And the question that Christoph wanted answered is he said, I deeply admire Jesus and his message, but I'm also skeptical of themes that have been integral to Christianity, the virgin birth, the resurrection, miracles, and so on. Do I have to believe in all that stuff in order to be a Christian? And Keller told him politely, yes, you have to believe in these miracles. In many ways, Christoph wanted to do what good old Thomas Jefferson did. Have you heard about Jefferson's Bible? He loved Jesus. He loved the teachings of Jesus. But he took a razor blade and carefully cut out all the verses in the four Gospels that had anything to do with the miraculous uh, he liked Jesus's teaching like Christoph. He, you know, Jesus is, is a great teacher. Um, but all those miracles and things, you know, and I'm not so sure about that. But I wonder if, if Christoph really understands Jesus's teaching. 
Now, he likely has read the Sermon on the Mount and, and has read the many parables of Jesus and greatly admires Jesus's moral teaching. I mean, it's not hard for anyone, whether you're a Christian or not, to appreciate that Jesus is the greatest moral teacher that the world has ever seen. But what about the rest of Jesus's teaching? One scholar estimates that 20% of Jesus's teaching is related to the events surrounding the return of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus. If Christoph and so many others in our world admire Jesus's teaching when it comes to morality and ethics, maybe they ought to give the other part of Jesus's teaching a chance, including that teaching that has to do with this important doctrine of the second coming. So that's why I'm talking about the second coming in today's sermon. The reason it comes up today is because of something that Peter says in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. And the, this fact ought to dictate how we live our lives, Peter says. But what does that mean? The end of all things is at hand. Did Peter mean that Jesus was going to return very soon in his lifetime? And the best answer to that, I believe, is no. For one thing, Jesus told Peter in John 21 that Peter himself would be crucified, that he would give his life because of his allegiance to Christ. This took place around the year 65 under the emperor Nero. So Peter knew the second coming wasn't going to happen in his lifetime, so it wouldn't be that soon. Besides, Peter also had the benefit of being one of Jesus's 12 main disciples, and he heard Jesus teach and preach repeatedly on this doctrine. He knew that there were certain events or signs that had to take place or be fulfilled before Jesus would return. He probably didn't imagine that these signs would be fulfilled soon. Now, the main place that you can find Jesus's teaching on the second coming is in Matthew chapter 24. It's also there are parallel accounts in Mark and Luke. Now, Jesus has talked about the second coming before chapter 24, um, but chapter 24 is his most extensive discussion. Why does it come up at all? Because Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem and his disciples are admiring the temple that King Herod built. It wasn't one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, but it was right up there. This was truly a breathtaking feat of architecture. And um, it was it was admired uh, the world over. And these disciples are admiring the temple. And Jesus says to them, you see this? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. In other words, the temple, so large, so beautiful, so impressive, will be utterly destroyed. 
And on the Mount of Olives nearby, the disciples ask Jesus about this. And they ask him a twofold question. Tell us, when will these things be? In other words, when will the temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So the disciples have asked about the destruction of the temple and the second coming. And in Jesus' response that follows, he talks about both events. And it's often hard to tell when he's talking about the first event and when he's talking about the second. And that's intentional. Jesus is speaking the way prophets in the Bible speak. He's He's saying that the Roman invasion of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, which took place in the year 70, reflect on a much smaller scale what God will eventually do on a global scale when Christ returns. So he's using the destruction of the temple to make a point about the end of the age and the second coming. There's a a near-term fulfillment of Jesus's prophecy, and there's a long-term fulfillment. Old Testament prophets do this sort of thing all the time. And I want to give you two quick examples. In Isaiah 7, King Ahaz who is a a king of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. He is deeply worried about the king in the north, the northern kingdom, and the king of Syria. He's worried that those two kings are going to um, conspire to bring down his kingdom. And Isaiah the prophet goes to King Ahaz in order to reassure him, to tell him, no, you have nothing to be afraid of. And Isaiah says the following, behold, he says, I'm going to give you a sign. Here's a sign you can count on that will tell you that you have nothing to worry about. He says, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Isaiah goes on to say that before this child grows up, becomes a man, these two kings that you're so desperately worried about, they're going to be dead and gone. Their kingdoms will be no more. You have nothing to fear, in other words. Now, we don't know the identity of the virgin or the child to whom the prophet was referring, but there was some woman and child who were going to fulfill this prophecy immediately. Now, of course, we know this passage most famously because In Matthew's Christmas narrative, he shows that it's this scripture that's fulfilled in the birth of Christ, our Emmanuel. So again, do you see how there's a there's a near term fulfillment of the prophecy and a long term fulfillment? The same thing happens in the book of Joel. Joel uh, is warning the people of Israel about God's judgment coming upon them. And that judgment comes upon them in the form of a plague of locusts, which is going to potentially cause great famine in the land. But he says it's not too late if the people repent and turn to God that this crisis, that this judgment, this destruction could be avoided. 
But here's the funny thing when you read Joel. It's a short book. You should, you should read it and see for yourself. Um, he pivots. The prophet pivots from talking about this plague of locusts and God's judgment to God's final judgment of the whole earth. Ultimately, he's talking about our hope for salvation in Christ. These two events seem to blend together in the book of Joel. He uses a small-scale event about locusts to make a point about a large-scale event, which is the end of the age, the coming of Christ, the coming of God's kingdom. And Jesus does the same thing when he talks about the destruction of the temple and relates it to his second coming. When you read Matthew 24, it seems like the second coming will happen, you know, at the same time as the destruction of the temple or or, or very shortly thereafter. But that's the way prophecy is. As one scholar says, it's like when when you view a mountain range from some great distance and you see the mountain peaks, and they're very close to one another, at least as far as you can tell. But as you get closer and closer to the mountains, you begin to see that they're actually separated by, by many miles. That's kind of how prophecy is. There's a technical name for this, which I now can't recall, but scholars talk about this. I emphasize this point, not because I want to bore you with the details of how Old Testament prophecy works. But because I don't want you to get discouraged and think to yourself, the second coming's never going to happen. Let's face it. I mean, the apostles thought it was going to happen in the first century. Jesus seemed to think it was going to happen in the first century. And here we are 20 centuries later and nothing. You know, I mean, like, that's just a bunch of fantasy. That, that's not real. And it feels like it's kind of not real. It doesn't help, of course, that over the years, so many Christians have predicted when the second coming was going to occur. Um, for example, there was some guy back in 1988 who wrote a little booklet called 88, the, the 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in 1988. Newsflash, that didn't happen. And I promise he revised it. And then it was like, I'm not, I, I'm not exaggerating. The 92 reasons Christ will return in 1992. I mean, but this kind of thing happens all the time. You know, I mean, the, whether it's the late great planet Earth or, you know, all the speculation about that or, or uh, more recently, the Left Behind series of books. People love charts and graphs. They love speculating about when it's going to happen. We remember, of course, that Jesus told his disciples that even he didn't know when it was going to happen. Only the father knew the father had not revealed that to his son. And so it's presumptuous of us to imagine that we can somehow know. Having said that. I'm going to do something now I have not done in 13 years of pastoral ministry. I'm going to talk about four signs, four signs that we know have to be fulfilled before Christ will return. And the Bible tells us these signs because they do want us, the writers do want us, God wants us to pay attention. And the first and most important sign is found in Matthew 24. Verse 14, Jesus said, 
And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So Jesus says that the main reason that there's a delay in the second coming is salvation for the world. God wants the whole world to have an opportunity to hear and respond to the good news of his son. To say the very least, you and I would never have been born, much less born again, if Jesus had returned back in the first century. It's no exaggeration to say that God, for whatever reason, wanted you and me to be with him in eternity. So that's why he waited in order to save more people. Peter himself refers to this very reason for the delay in his second epistle. In chapter 3, he warns his readers that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. He goes on, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Did you catch that? With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. So from God's point of view, it's only been two days since Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. From God's perspective, not a lot of time has passed. So where are we with this first sign? Has the gospel been proclaimed to all the nations throughout the world? Well, it depends, of course, on how we define all nations. But as any uh, foreign missionary would attest, there remain many, many tribes and cultures in the world that have never been exposed to the good news of Jesus Christ. Next, Jesus warns in Matthew 24, verses 10 through 12, that there will be widespread apostasy. Uh, apostasy means turning away, falling away, abandoning the Christian faith. That's going to happen. It's going to intensify uh, before Christ returns. Of course, it's happening now. It's happened throughout history. Uh, John, Paul, and Paul in their, in their letters warn about apostasy. It was a reality back then. But Jesus does say that it will intensify on a scale, you know, unprecedented scale before Christ returns. <clears throat> So you know what else will get worse uh, before Christ returns? The suffering and persecution of Christians. This is often called the great tribulation. Jesus describes it in Matthew 24, 9 and elsewhere. But, but there he says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. A few years ago, shortly after becoming Pope, Pope Francis said in a Christmas message, that given the fact that there was more suffering and persecution of Christians today than there have been at any, has been at any point in the history of the world, including those first few centuries under the Roman emperors, then that could be a sign, the Pope said, that Christ will return soon. Finally, 
there will be an Antichrist. Now, even in the first century, there were what the Apostle John called Antichrists with an S. And there was a spirit of Antichrist that pervaded the world. Um, But there were Antichrists, and and probably many Christians in the first century believed that the Emperor Nero was at least one of them um, because of his persecution of the church, the unspeakable evil that he did against Christians. In the 20th century, there have been other candidates for the Antichrist, whether it's Hitler or Stalin or Mao or Pol Pot or any number of other brutal and evil rulers that had fanatical followings. And and what I'm trying to say here is that I think that they were antichrists. I think that Nero was an antichrist. I think there are antichrists in the world, just like the Apostle John thought. But still, even John acknowledged that there would be one particular uh, chief antichrist who would come. And Paul himself in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 refers to the antichrist who will come before Christ returns. He calls him the man of lawlessness, the son of perdition or the son of destruction. He's going to have great miraculous power, which has been given to him by Satan. And he is going to convince many people that he is the Messiah or he is he's going to proclaim that he himself is God and he's going to have a large following. And well, Whatever he's going to do, he's going to lead many people astray. So we know from Scripture that these are four definite signs that have to be fulfilled before Christ's second coming. Proclamation of the gospel to all nations. A widespread falling away of Christians from the faith. Great persecution or tribulation of Christians And finally, the emergence of one great Antichrist, empowered by Satan to lead many astray. Have these signs been fulfilled already? No. Will they be fulfilled soon? Maybe. (laughs) We don't know. And this, I think, is what Peter means when he says that the end of all things is at hand. To say something is at hand is not the same as saying it's going to happen soon. To say something is at hand is to say that it will happen next. The return of Christ is the next big event in God's salvation story. And with this hanging over our heads, Peter says, we ought to live in the following way. I'm going to talk about the very first thing he says. I would love to talk about more, but I'm already pressed for time. Because the second coming is at hand, we need to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Why? For the sake of your prayers, Peter says, Isn't that an odd thing to say? In light of the impending second coming of our Lord, your top priority in life is prayer. What does one thing have to do with the other? Well, first, it reminds us that God has a fixed point of no return, after which 
No one will be able to repent and believe in Jesus and be saved. Time is running out for our world. Our mission is urgent. So we pray. We recognize that we don't have the power to make anyone be converted. We don't have the power to to make anyone be born again. Only the Holy Spirit can do that work for God's elect. But what we can do is to pray. Jesus makes a similar point in the Gospels when he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Notice he doesn't say, The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Therefore, you better roll up your sleeves, get out there in the fields and get to work. No, he says, therefore, pray. There is no challenge our church faces that will not be solved first by prayer. There is no challenge that we face as individuals that will not first be solved by prayer. Personally speaking, in spite of this fact, I too often find it easier to roll up my sleeves and get to work and try to solve the problem on my own before I think about praying. I need to do something about whatever this problem is, I think to myself, and I forget, I forget, I forget that prayer is doing something In fact, prayer is the most important work that any of us can do. Does my life reflect this fact? Does your life reflect this fact? The problem with prayer, I've found, is that it's something that all of us can fake. You know, no one sees us pray, um, except when we pray in public. We can fake, you know, fake sincerity when we do that. No one, we're not going to get graded on our prayer life. No one's going to give us a raise based on whether or not we pray effectively. That's true for pastors too, by the way. Um, No one knows. No one knows what's going on in our heart. And it's not that we don't want to pray, but we're really busy. and, 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 you know, we've got this deadline to meet and we've got to go take our kids to this uh, extracurricular activity and we've got to do this and that and all of a sudden prayer is the thing that's fallen to the very bottom of our to-do list for that particular day. this, This happens to me. I'm sure it happens to you too. In fact, can I just say that when I was on vacation a couple of weeks ago, I told you about it, um, one of the best things about the vacation, I don't think I've told my family this, but I brought my, I mean, I always bring my Bible wherever I go and, and, you know, some devotional material. I was, um, one reason why that was an extra good vacation is sometimes vacations are really busy and prayer is not often like the top priority, but I, for whatever reason, praise God, made time to, to sit down with my Bible every morning before we began you know, our busy adventure of sightseeing in Washington, D.C. or New York City. And, and I made sure that I prayed and read scripture. And, and it was, I think that made the trip even much more successful than it otherwise would have been. I hope that's, that reflects some kind of Christian growth on my part, because I, it's like uh, now that I'm a little bit older, I don't know about you, but 
like for my own survival, <laughs> my own mental health, I really know, like I know that I need to spend time with God every day. I'm just desperate to do that. And I hope that all of you have that same sort of desperation. But in order for us to believe that prayer is something that should be our top priority, we have to believe this. We have to believe that prayer changes the world. We have to believe that prayer changes things in our world. We have to believe that not praying also makes a difference in our world. In general, my experience with prayer reflects something that the Archbishop of Canterbury back in the mid-20th century, uh, William Temple, said. When I pray, coincidences happen. When I don't, they don't. <laughs> but we have this, um, I've, seen it, I've seen it in on bumper stickers. It's kind of like bumper sticker theology, and it's really terrible theology. And it says, Prayer doesn't change things. Prayer changes me. You know, something like that. Or prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes me. As if the only benefit that we get out of prayer is what happens inside us. And that's just an absolute lie. I'm sorry. That's, how can you listen to Jesus' uh, parables on prayer, for instance, and his many words of prayer throughout the Gospels and imagine that the only thing that prayer does is change us. No, prayer changes the world. We have to believe, listen to me, we have to believe that God, the God of the universe, the God who has all the power, that God will do things in response to the prayers of little old me, (laughs) This little speck in the universe. God will do things in response to my prayers that God otherwise would not do. That's what the Bible teaches. God will do things in response to your prayers that God otherwise won't do. Not because he has to. Not because you've, you've said this magic incantation that forces you know, God to do something that he wouldn't. No, it's because God is so gracious and he wants to be in relationship with us. And he wants, to, he wants there to be give and take in the relationship. So he lets, he graciously lets his children uh, uh, um, pray to him. And he graciously gives his children things when they ask that he wouldn't give if they don't ask. And of course, there's no guarantee he's going to give us what we ask. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that for a moment. But we should believe that if we never ask, if we don't ask, we're not going to get it, you know, um, sometimes at least. This also tells us, by the way, that God is in control of history. Um, The second coming means that God has a fixed date when history, as we know, it's going to come to an end. Between now and then, however, this emphasis on prayer means that we get to shape what happens in history. Again, not by our own power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. God is, he wants to collaborate with us on on what happens between now and the second coming. And and that's what we're supposed to do. 
So by all means, pray, uh, believing that, um, that God can and will uh, give you what you ask for. We've had a difficult week this week, I think, with um, the, the um, saber rattling going on with North Korea and Kim Jong-un. Kind of a scary guy in a lot of ways, you know? And um, the threat of nuclear war suddenly seems more realistic than it seemed at least since the early 80s or maybe even the Cuban Missile Crisis. I don't know. I wasn't alive back then. But um, guess what? <laughs> Jesus also talks about wars and rumors of wars. You know, these things happen, Jesus says. But they don't derail God from his plan. And um, he's going to fulfill his plan uh, regardless what kind of evil stuff happens. You know, we were, as I said in the prayer, we were obviously deeply troubled by what we saw this weekend in Virginia. Well, let's not doubt for a moment. All this stuff is bound to happen. It's not good. It's evil. But we worship and believe in a God who's in control and who's going to make sure that these kind, this kind of evil is defeated. Well, I want to say about 20 more things, but I think I might instead try to finish on time today. Um, But I do hope that each one of us will take seriously our top priority, which is to pray. Pray for the church. Pray for me, your pastor. Pray for the leadership. Pray for one another. And um, let's pray for each other and Let's expect our Father who loves us to respond. Okay? Almighty God, help us to live our lives not in some kind of anxious fear about the future or even about the return of your Son, but in hope, with joy, as we anticipate what his return will mean for us and for our world. In the meantime, we have work to do. But the most important work that any of us does is to pray. Remind us of that as we go about our busy week. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you're on the south side of Atlanta on Sunday morning, I hope you'll consider coming and worshiping with us at Hampton United Methodist Church. We are in downtown Hampton on West Main Street. We have two worship services. We have a 9 o'clock acoustic contemporary and an 11 o'clock traditional. Won't you join us? 